This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, May 28th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Mountain Village discusses comprehensive plan. G is for government previews Telluride Town Council. Legislature nears end of session and a mountain weather forecast. It's important to have a roadmap, a guiding path for the direction an organization, business, or even town is going. For Mountain Village, that roadmap is a comprehensive plan, or comp plan. Mountain Village's comp plan was last adopted in 2011. The document is supposed to stay the guiding light for future uses and needs in the community. But just 10 years after the plan was adopted, Mountain Village is going back to the document to amend it. Mountain Village is working with the planning and development firm MIG to work through the amendment process. According to Jay Rankins, principal planner with MIG, they're not starting from the beginning. You know, the vision of the the comp plan itself was pretty sound. And we weren't really charged with um, amending that through this process. This, again, is a pretty strategic amendment to the comprehensive plan because it it has a lot of really uh, strong values still. The town doesn't anticipate huge changes to the plan, rather amendments that simplify the document and takes into consideration economic changes like Airbnbs or VRBOs that weren't a reality 10 years ago. Over the past few months, MIG conducted a survey to get community feedback. Everyone from residents to business owners, visitors to second homeowners, asking questions on what their concerns or hopes are for the development of the town. They also conducted a number of focus groups with stakeholders in the process. Last week, Rankins, along with MIG planning and urban designer Ellie Brophy, presented the survey results to Mountain Village Town Council. When it comes to community benefits, Brophy says full-time residents and second homeowners are in line. The top choice from overall in the survey for community amenities and benefits that people would like to see more of was new and improved pedestrian paths and facilities. Um, There's also a lot of preference for more natural and protected open space. She adds both groups agree when it comes to where they'd like to see development. That's the village center and town hall areas. She notes there is some difference in terms of where survey participants are nervous to see growth. Second homeowners show concern about growth in the core area, while residents show concern about growth in the meadows. But there is a key and major area where Mountain Village residents and second homeowners differ. Affordable housing. Rankin says there is commonality when it comes to an interest in the effects of short-term rentals. Residents, homeowners, business owners really want to understand that economic impact of short-term rentals in particular and how that's influencing uh, the supply uh, within Mountain Village for for long-term, short-term residents, etc. But Brophy notes there's a big difference when it comes to the importance of creating more affordable housing. Workforce housing, um, about 60% of full-time residents wanted to see more of it in Mountain Village, whereas only about 25% of part-time residents, second homeowners wanted to see more. Um, same with other respondents, they're at about 60, so about same as um, as full-time residents. Um, and that was the top choice for other and year-round residents, whereas it did not actually even make the top five for part-time residents or second homeowners. Brophy says when asked about land use in Mountain Village, year-round residents say they'd like to see more housing 
Second, homeowners say they'd like to see more restaurants. Mountain Village Town Council member Pete Dupre says that disconnect is the real standout when it comes to the feedback. I think there's one epiphany in this analysis is that I think we need to better educate the part-time owners uh, around the need for workforce housing. Council member Marty Prohaska chimes in, especially if they want more restaurants. Mountain Village is about halfway through the amendment process for the comprehensive plan. Town Council plans to review and adopt the amended document in August 2021. Telluride Town Council is back for its regularly scheduled meeting next week. With Monday a holiday, KOTO News is bringing G is for Government early. In this installment, Councilmember Geneva Shawnette previews what to expect. Hey Geneva, thanks for joining me for G is for Government. Thanks for having me. Let's get into it. Telluride Town Council has a busy agenda next week, with several work sessions actually split between the day, morning and afternoon. Can you share what the morning is going to be? Yes, absolutely. First, we're going to be hearing a presentation and funding request from the Telluride Foundation. Uh, they have a number of funds that they use to distribute into the community um, that were depleted uh, in the past year or so. Um, we'll learn more about uh, their requests at that presentation. And then we will have um, a continued discussion regarding the free box. Uh, we had one more session about that uh, at our last meeting. It was very well attended and um, had some great ideas. We had a ton of public comment, and this is the next step in that process. We're coming up with a plan for how to reopen the free box, where it should be, how it's going to be managed to improve some of the spillage that's been occurring and the, the bad treatment of the free box and sort of renew our uh, community commitment to how to uh, manage that. Then in the afternoon, y'all are actually moving up administrative reports. Uh, included in that is going to be an update on the Sunnyside Affordable Housing Project, which is the project occurring just uh, west of Eider Creek by Society Turn. Uh, I'm really excited about that project, so stoked to hear the progress report there. And finally, we head back to work sessions. We have three 20-minute work sessions scheduled. The first one is going to be about our summer 2021 construction update. Uh, everyone knows summer is construction season in Colorado, so we will be um, learning about what kind of big uh, construction uh, projects that will be affecting traffic in town and probably in the region. And then after that, we have a discussion about uh, OHVs, off-highway vehicles. Um, you know, that's becoming an issue all over the state as well as people who are going around recreating are bringing uh, their little 4x4s off of trails or into towns, and we're just going to be discussing our options for restricting those there. Next and finally, we have a discussion regarding the Hickox Rule, which is the nickname that we've given to the ordinance that allows um, stores uh, in our commercial core to do display racks on the sidewalk and whether or not we want to continue doing that as traffic and pedestrian traffic has gotten pretty congested on Main Street over the last few years as we've gotten busier. So a big full day uh, of a lot of work sessions, which is honestly really exciting to me because it means we're getting back to taking care of issues for our town that don't involve COVID-19. So um, psyched to get back to work and just 
into just trying to improve our policies and make life better for as many people as we can here in the town of Telluride. Well, Geneva, thanks for taking a few minutes to chat with me today. Awesome. Thanks, Julia. We'll see you there. Colorado's General Assembly is in its final weeks before closing out the 2021 legislative session. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO's State House reporter Scott Franz provides a whistle-stop tour of several bills making their way to Governor Jared Polis's desk. Have a listen. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining me for another installment of Capital Conversation. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. So we are a few weeks away from the legislative session wrapping up in Colorado. And so it seems like a good time to kind of check back in with a number of the bills that we've been talking about throughout this session. Um, The first one that I know we've talked about a lot is the health insurance option bill that's going through. Where is that standing right now and what's going on with it? Yeah, so it just actually passed the Senate in a uh, 19 to 16 vote. There was actually one Democratic senator who voted um, against it. And I think the, the headline on this bill is just how significantly it has continued to, to change as it progresses. It's about one step away from Governor Polis. They have to sort through the amendments. But, you know, it started as a kind of true public option where the, the government would, you know, offer a new insurance plan to try and spark competition. It became something very different. As it's heading to the governor, the plan now is to let private insurance companies offer the plan and um, to really address the concerns of a lot of Democratic senators with with big hospitals in their districts. The bill sponsors, you know, had to, to tweak this to, you know, remove the penalties that they were planning for any hospitals or doctors who refused to take a new standardized plan. So what we're left with is a real question, you know, is this going to be effective? The other concession sponsors are making is, you know, it originally aimed to lower premiums by more than 20%. Now those goals have been reduced to 15. You know, so this is a case where, you know, the, the lobbying against it, you know, the healthcare industry's opposition really, really changed it. Yeah. Moving on to the next one that I wanted to chat with you about, and that's gun reform that has kind of looked different throughout this session based off of a number of incidents that have taken place in Colorado. There's a number of bills that are, are looking to touch on gun reform. What are those ones looking like? Yes, yeah, so those, those have remained largely intact. It's kind of an opposite story from you know, the health care bills. Um, they, they largely do what the sponsors you know, have always intended. Um, and again, real quick, you know, those three bills are to create an office of gun violence prevention, to let local governments pass tougher gun laws than the state, and finally, to really change background checks to stop people who are convicted of violent misdemeanors from buying guns. These three all have cleared um, at least one chamber and, and are kind of in their final stages here at the Capitol. And, you know, what I've noticed, the tone of the testimony has changed. You know, even you know, some of these earlier gun reforms before the Boulder shooting, they really you know, saw filibusters from Republicans who were opposed. They saw long hearings. But these, you know, it's, yeah, they've been having healthy debate, but 
they've still been moving through, usually within a couple hours at, at each of their hearing. And you can still hear the sadness in people's testimony, you know, who were impacted by the Boulder shooting or more recently the um, one in Colorado Springs. So, you know, those are, are heading toward the governor, expecting all of them to, to pass largely intact here in the coming days. Yeah. The final one I did want to touch base with you on is the COVID stimulus. What's happening with this major bill that's going through? Right. So, you know, a lot of those pieces have either um, already passed or are very close to passing. The plan uh, is to have $800 million of state funding. But then we learned earlier this week that the legislature plans to spend about $2 billion of federal money from the American Rescue Plan this session, um, including some very late bills still going through on transportation projects, things like that. But then what's going to happen is they're, they're going to hold off on spending as much as a billion dollars um, until next session in January. And, and their reasoning is they want to spend this money on, on two big issues, housing security and mental health and behavioral health programming. But they want to first create some interim committees. Um, you know, this is a process the legislature does pretty often on, on important topics like we saw school safety a couple of years ago, you know, where lawmakers work through the summer. Um, so that's what they're going to be doing and, and, you know, inviting experts and community members to really tell them what they think the best way to spend a combined billion dollars on, on these important issues should be. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just a, a smattering and, a, as I mentioned, a whistle-stop tour of some of the bills that we've been talking about this legislative session. Still a few more weeks to go, so we'll keep touching back with other um, updates on things that are happening. But, Scott, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with me. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thanks. That was KOTO Scott Franz reporting from Denver. San Miguel County is looking for ways to incentivize local solar installation. County building official Matt Gonzalez briefed the county commissioners on the existing requirements for installation at their meeting this week. He says the main barrier for installation is the county's requirement for applications to come with engineering assessments. But that doesn't mean he thinks the requirement should go away. Our county's vast and and so is the climate. I mean, we have insane wind loads all over the different parts of the county, not to mention snow loads. So I do think it's good to have an engineer or design professional prescribe how to connect this new structure to an existing structure and verify that the design criteria is still met. The county does, however, waive permitting fees. Which I think is is a good incentive personally um, to offer that service to our county residents to incentivize uh, to some degree the use of renewable energy. Gonzalez says he has started talking with other county officials about additional potential sources of funding to incentivize solar energy installation by offsetting some of the added costs of hiring an engineer. Not only would we waive the fees, but we could also give them a, uh, I don't know, $1,500 rebate or something like that. And obviously that that number was just a guess, but um, that way it would be a little more appealing for someone to go through the legwork to to get an engineer and to get this infrastructure from their building to help us reach our sustainability goals. County Commissioner Hillary Cooper thinks the county should also consider implementing a more active mitigation funding mechanism into its building and land use code updates. If you're building over a certain amount or if you use over a certain amount of energy, 
you either offset it 100% or with renewables or you pay into a fund and then we use that fund to you know, subsidize others, uh, incentivize others who are building renewable energy. While no decisions were made on what the future solar incentives would look like, Commissioner Chris Holstrom shared her support as well. Commissioner Lance Waring was not in attendance of the meeting. There are a number of health resources in the community, but how many people know they exist or use them? That's what Tri-County Health Network is looking to find out. Next week, the organization is launching a community health survey to better understand the needs of the community, how residents use the resources available, and if there are any gaps in service. Tri-County notes it conducted the first community health survey in 2014, where residents identified behavioral health as a key need. Based on that data, Tri-County introduced teletherapy, mental health first aid, safe talk, and the NAMI family-to-family program. The organization adds this year, following the pandemic, the community survey will be a new glimpse into the needs of the community, which may have changed over the past year. The community health survey will go live Tuesday, June 1st. It will be available to fill out at tchnetwork.org health survey. The survey will be available in English and Spanish. Tri-County will also be at the farmer's markets and other community events this summer for those looking to fill the survey out in person. A multi-agency effort in Montrose led to the arrest of a man suspected of attempted murder this week. According to the Montrose County Sheriff's Office, the Federal Bureau of Investigation contacted the office regarding Gilfredo Morga Mendoza, a man suspected of an attempted murder just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. The FBI informed the Sheriff's Office Morga Mendoza was in Montrose. The Sheriff's Office and High Impact Target Team, FBI, Montrose Police Department, and the 7th Judicial Task Force conducted an operation that resulted in Morga Mendoza's arrest. In a statement, Under Sheriff George Jackson says the operation is, quote, the perfect example of federal and local collaboration. Morga Mendoza is being held in the Montrose County Detention Center awaiting a hearing for extradition to Nevada. Across the West, drought conditions are the worst they've been in nearly two decades. The dry weather is hitting farmers and ranchers particularly hard, who need water for their crops and livestock. But it's not just their bottom line that's being threatened. The effect of drought and climate change on ag workers' mental health is increasingly concerning healthcare providers. KSJD's Lucas Brady-Woods reports. A warning for listeners, this story discusses suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. Mike Nolan has been a farmer for about 18 years. I don't like gardening. Like, (laughs) I like farming in the sense of, like, I like tractors, I like equipment, I like big harvests. His farm is in the Mancus Valley at the base of southwest Colorado's snow-capped San Juan Mountains and across from the bluffs of Mesa Verde National Park. In a normal season, Nolan grows up to seven acres of crops anything from turnips to squash to tomatoes. This season, though, he's had to cut his crops down to less than a single acre. These fields should be cultivated and prepped and looking good, but they're covered in grass and thistle. That's because Nolan's farm and all of its neighbors are experiencing extreme drought conditions or worse, and that's limiting water supplies for the region's farmers. 
Alfalfa farmers ideally need 30 inches of irrigation water per acre per season for their crops. This season though, some farmers in the county are only getting a fraction of an inch from their reservoirs. As a result, farmers have to make adjustments and some of the sacrifices they're forced to make can be really hard on their mental health. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you're like, should I be doing this? Like, does this make any sense? That stuff just builds. Um, and it's, on seasons like this, it's, it can crack, you know, and that's the scary part. Nolan's not the only one noticing the mental health effects that drought is having on farmers. According to data compiled by Celebrating Healthy Communities, a Colorado-based suicide prevention group, farmers and ag workers are the second highest at-risk population in the county where Nolan farms. That means they're more likely to die by suicide than almost any other occupational group. And the data show another concerning correlation. Researchers also compared the state of Colorado's drought data for the past decade with the state's suicide data for the same period. When drought conditions worsen, so does the suicide rate among farmers. J.C. Karika, the CEO of Southeast Health based in La Junta, isn't surprised by those findings. He specializes in behavioral health care in rural communities. There's seasonality. I think there's peaks of anxiety, peaks, you know, peaks of depression. It's, it's ever flowing because it's, again, weather related or, or market volatility. He also says that drought can be especially devastating. When you see the wind come through and shear off whatever little bit of grass you had from a quarter inch of rain uh, a couple days prior, it's kind of the carrot and the stick, and sometimes there's just not enough carrot to keep, you know, to keep people's hopes high. Many mental health issues in the ag community can be compounded by lack of services. The answer, Karika says, is to make more of an effort to get mental health care to farmers on their level. Kate Greenberg is the Commissioner of Agriculture for the state of Colorado. As we see financial stress increase, as we've seen in the, you know, in the last decade or so, we also see spikes in suicide rates among agricultural communities. Greenberg says her department is working with local partners across the state to get more resources to rural areas. What works in a city might not translate to agricultural communities. So, she says, resources like online training manuals or public service announcements should be written with that in mind. Colorado also maintains a crisis hotline, a free and confidential mental health resource that's available 24-7. But as climate change continues to heat up and dry out the West farmland, Greenberg says water stress will remain a challenge to keeping agriculture viable and those who do it mentally well. Back in the Mancus Valley, Mike Nolan says this year's lack of water is changing his operation in a fundamental way. The big one was laying off everybody, which was a real bummer. Never had to do that. It was really hard to do. But Nolan says off and on therapy has really helped. I just look at it as a feast of famine. We're going to have a hard year this year. We'll figure it out. Um, we'll hope and pray that it'll be different. He says if it's not, then he'll take the year off, get a job away from the farm, and pay his bills. Then he'll see what he can do down the line. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Cortez, Colorado. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for cloudy skies this evening with a low around 40 degrees. Saturday, there is a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms with a high near 70. Saturday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 40. Sunday calls for a chance of rain showers with partly sunny skies during the day and partly cloudy skies at night. The high is in the mid-60s with a low around 40 degrees. This has been the news for Friday, May 28th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. KOTO News will be off on Monday, May 31st for the Memorial Day holiday. 
We will be back with our regularly scheduled news programming on Tuesday.